If you enjoy our videos and podcasts and would like us to continue putting out regular quality content, head over to patreon.com forward slash aircrewinterview where you can donate monthly and in return you will get rewards ranging from early interview viewings, bonus clips, credited as a producer and much more. Thank you and enjoy. So Rain, when did you first become interested in aviation? You know, I was fortunate to grow up in a community that was filled with aviators. And at a young age, I went flying in a Piper Cub. It was a beautiful day. It was 70 degrees. I can't do the Celsius conversion, but, you know, it's a real nice spring spring afternoon. Door was open. And my neighbor took me flying. And I think that was the initial hook into aviation. My dad saw – he wasn't a pilot, but he saw a lot of our neighbors who were all airline pilots, former military pilots – and looked at that and said, hey, you know, that might be something you'd be interested in pursuing. It'd probably be a great career path. So he kind of pushed me along that way. And after that Piper Cub flight, I think for me, it was like, hey, I definitely want to go do this. I didn't really know how to go about it or what it was Mm -hmm. going to evolve into. But that was kind of the initial foray into aviation for me. Awesome. So what year did you actually join the U.S. Air Force? So I commissioned uh, into ROTC in 2007 out of Georgia Tech, and then went on, spent about a year and a half waiting to go to pilot training down in South Georgia, Moody Air Force Base, which was a great time because I was flying around on helicopters, learning about the combat rescue world. And then I went on to pilot training at Columbus Air Force Base in Mississippi. Awesome. So can you talk us through some of the aircraft you started training on? Yeah, when it all began, uh, again, that Piper Cub flight, so I had a little bit of time there, and then I learned to fly in a Cessna 152, uh, I actually had my first flight on September 10th, 2001. So the next day was, I would say, probably the the catalyst to propel me into military aviation because I wanted to serve my country and I wanted to fly. But uh, throughout college, I kind of took a break from aviation, knowing and hoping that I would go into the Air Force and fly. And that was kind of my, everything was focused towards that. Once I got into the Air Force, we all started on the T-6-2, the Texan II trainer, go about six months there. And then I flew the t 38 then back to the T-6 to teach people for about three years. During that time period, I went into an MC-12 deployment, which is a King Air 350 deployment to Afghanistan. So that was kind of a unique experience. Came back to the T-6 for a little bit, then to the T-38 again, eventually the F-16, and now I'm flying the 777. Awesome. I mean, yeah, just going back a bit, what was it like going from the T-6 to the T-38? That must have been quite a jump. Yeah, it is. So like on a departure... And the T6, I mean, I'm trying to remember this is going back a little bit, but I think probably going, like normal like speeds, like 200 knots and the 38, like the min speed is like 300 knots. And if you're doing rejoins and things like that, you can go in 350 or 400 knots. Wow. So the pace at which things are happening is much quicker. So I do remember like taking off on the T38 for the first time. And I think I was in the airspace, but my mind was still taking the runway. So it was just <laughs> happening so yeah. fast. Uh, but you learn, you, know, you obviously learn to operate at that pace. It was just the speed at which things happen is so quick, and you got you got to pick up the pace and and get with it, you know. Absolutely. And what was it like having reheat or afterburner for the first time? How reheat? That's the first time I've heard that term. I really like that term. Yeah. Uh, so the AB and the T thirty eight. When you first use that, you're like, whoa, <laughs> this is amazing. Uh, you know, you kind of get kicked in your in the seat just a little bit. That's really when you get to the F-16, that's when you fully appreciate what the reheat or afterburner can bring to the table uh, because you can get up and go pretty quick. 
Yeah, we're certainly going to get onto that uh, in a bit, Rain. But uh, let's talk about you said the uh, I guess the the King Air there, which is the is it classes the MC twelve W. So how did like how did that come about in your trade? Uh, uh, you know your career. Like that seems a bit of a, a strange step. Yeah, it is. So during that time period, so let's say like the two thousand nine two thousand ten time frame. UAVs were really coming about in the US military. I mean, I mean, really all our five eye partners were just needing RPAs and UAVs at an insatiable rate in order to provide intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance yeah. over Afghanistan and Iraq. Well, they could not produce enough of them fast enough. So the US Air Force said, Hey, here is a stopgap measure. We're going to take off the shelf technology, put the tech in it that we need, and put air crew in it who can do the mission set that we need UAVs to be performing. So within six months, they took a King Air, they threw a bunch of tech in it, and they took people from all across the Air Force. So for the pilot side of the house, we had everyone from flying F-22s to C-17s and everything wow. in between. The back end, we had sensor operators who were tent. Usually they came from like AWACS, career fields, and they would be trained on how to run the full motion video. And in the back of the plane, we have cryptological operators who are typically linguists, and they were helping with some of the technology side and some of the human tracking that we were doing in that mission set. So it was a really unique experience. And again, it was a hodgepodge of everyone from all different platforms in the Air Force thrown together. So we would spend six months doing that. So guys would get pulled from their main weapon system. They would go do MC-12 training first learn how to fly it and then learn how to employ it with the mission, which would take about three or four months. And then you would go deploy to Afghanistan or Iraq for six months or so. And then you go back to your original weapon system. And then we've now transferred that mission predominantly to the army. There are a couple air national guard units that fly the MC 12, but again, it's a, it was a really unique and interesting perspective that definitely lent well to me in that 16, understanding the intelligence surveillance or reconnaissance world being in Iraq and Syria and being able to leverage some of those assets that were flying around when I was zipping around in an F-16 later on. And I read in your bio, you actually flew 128 combat missions in the MC-12. Can you tell us about this or as much as you can? Yeah. So it was a, it was in such demand. We were flying nonstop. If I ever have a couple million dollars, I'll definitely buy a King Air because <laughs> after seeing what those planes can do, it's really yeah. impressive. Um, but we would, you know, on average, you would fly anywhere from like six days to 14 days straight. And you're flying on average, like a four to six hour mission. So you're just flying nonstop. You would typically hit your waiver or your limit as far as the maximum number of hours in 30 consecutive days consistently. We're like on your 30th day, you would have to do some kind of ground duty just to let the hours fall off in order to go fly the next day. So that mission set was very diverse. Anything from providing armed over or not armed overwatch, but providing overwatch, doing IED scans for routes to really the bread and butter, which was locating individuals and correlating that with signals intelligence and then full motion video. So they could provide the ground forces. Hey, this is the bad guy that you've been looking at for and they can action on that, whether it be to capture or kill, whatever it might be. It was really unique because it was kind of cool working with different countries in that. Mm -hmm. So we had a couple Australian pilots, but we worked a lot with the Brits in Helmand province at that time. 
Cool. And then uh, obviously Americans all throughout the rest of uh, Afghanistan is where I was. So again, really unique mission set uh, and really fascinating to see kind of behind the curtain of what's just some of the capabilities are out there in order to go find yeah. people. And it's probably a mission and an aircraft that don't get too much credit, especially in like, you know, like aviation news and stuff like that, but obviously uh, a very important one. Uh, but uh, what was the aircraft actually like to fly? How did she handle? So I want to say the King Air 350, I guess someone's going to call me out on this, which is fine, but probably weighs around 13,000 pounds or like 12, I think 12 sevens, like it's max takeoff. Again, don't quote me on it, but it's somewhere around there. We would average usually taking off about 15 to uh, 15, six uh, every single time. So the plane was just overloaded with gear and fuel in order to go out there and do it. So it was kind of a pig to say the least a little bit, but it did handle very well. And when you're flying around in the the orbit, we're typically 10 knots above the stall speed, just trying to max endure to provide as much time on station for it. So with that, you know, the, the typical pattern that we're flying in that plane is to go out to the location to support the ground forces or whatever the mission might be for that day. And then you're usually flying in orbit around the location. And you might be doing full motion video scans. So, hey, we're just doing pattern, you know, pattern of life scans to see mm-hmm. who's here, what is going on in a typical day. And it might be, you know, a week looking at this compound where whoever the customer is, is analyzing this data and figuring out what the pattern of life that is happening here routinely. So they might be able to better plan a mission later on once they get enough data for whatever they're trying to do. Two, we're doing like vehicle follows. So, hey, you know, we want to go find you. Well, we would use different technology to find that and then track you and then follow you along. And so we can, you know, identify, hey, this is typically where this person sleeps at night or this is where they work and things like that. So, again, pretty fascinating, uh, I think. Absolutely. And uh, as you say, like off the shelf technology and, you you know, the I guess it was quite it sounds like it was like quite quick they got that you know that technology in their off-the-shelf uh aircraft so pretty amazing mission certainly yeah i think that you know they say it, it comparative to the p51 as far as from right. concept to putting out on the front lines uh, which if you think about it in today's terms of how we procure items it takes 15 years or whatever it might be and by the time we get the end product, it's so outdated that we now have to go through a whole new round of, you know, contract negotiations, bidding and things like that. So to see the Air Force realize that we need this technology, we need this capability. And then six months later, it's out flying, doing incredible. the mission is pretty, pretty incredible because you're moving a lot of pieces and taking a lot of resources. So uh, I do I do appreciate someone was doing a lot of work to make that happen. Indeed. So how many hours did you get on the aircraft we're in? Uh, there, I think just under 750 hours. So uh-huh. it was a lot, a lot of hours and really seven months total of flying. So uh, again, I think 120 hours was our maximum limit. So you, know, you can do the math, like you're on average, kind of always bumping up against that. Mm-hmm. And now we're obviously going to talk about the mighty F-16, which yeah, you're we well known for. Uh, so... It was was it 2013 you started your F16 F16 training and how did this even come about? Can you tell us your story on that? Yeah, so after pilot training, I stayed back as a first assignment instructor pilot 
So what happens for FAPES, as we call them, at the end of your three-year assignment, you compete again amongst your other your peer FAPES for a major weapon system, F-16, F-22, C-17, whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. So I did, in the middle of that FAPE tour, I was in Afghanistan for six months. I came back, requalified on the T-6 for a little bit. But actually, when I came back from Afghanistan, like while towards the end of my tour in Afghanistan, I had to put in my dream sheet. That's our hopes and dreams as far as what we can go fly after our FAPE tour. So I put in uh, F-16 as my first choice. When I was actually on my vacation or leave coming back from Afghanistan, that's when my commander called me because the assignments came out and told me I was going to go into the F-16. So I had a brief time. The light was at the end of the tunnel that tour when I came back to the T-6, knowing that I was going to transition to the F-16. So transitioning, I had to go back to the T-38 a little bit to go through an introduction to fighter fundamentals, which is about a seven-week course for us just to teach basic fighter maneuvering, surface attack, introduce just some of the concepts that you'll use later on in fighter training. Uh, But in May of 2013, I was starting F-16 training out at Luke Air Force Base in Arizona. Mm-hmm. And I want to know, what were your first thoughts on the F-16? Well, you know, like showing up to Arizona, just nothing but excitement, right? Because you finally arrive. The jet noise is very exciting. My first flight, it was 120 degrees. I took off just after noon uh, on a June day in Arizona. And so you talk about like the transition from the T6 to the T38. You know, by the time I was flying the F-16, I probably hadn't flown in about five weeks uh, between IFF, moving out to Arizona, doing academics. So trying to catch back up to the pace of things that were going on was uh, definitely a challenge, let alone the fact that it's 120 degrees. You can't hear anything. I remember <laughs> dropping my mask and it was just like all sweat. So uh, <laughs> it was it was quite, I mean, it is a memorable experience flying that for the first time. Yeah, because that's going to be one of my later questions, but we'll get into it uh, now just before I move on. So, yeah, like, talk us through your first flight and, again, reheat after burnout. What was that like kicking it in? And that must have been amazing. Yeah, it absolutely was. And it's kind of like one of those surreal things. I remember that first flight. Because at that point, too, I have now been through a couple different training programs and have a little bit of airmanship under my belt. So you obviously are focused at the task at hand and doing well in F-16, but I also was like, I just had to pull myself away for a minute to fully appreciate what was happening. Uh, So I tried to do that and just, again, the kick in the pants was lighting the after, even the Block 42, it only gets better as, you know, I progress to the Block 50 as far as uh, power goes. Mm -hmm. But it definitely was a, just a really surreal and awesome experience. And then you snap back to reality because you're pouring sweat trying to figure out what's going on, where you are, and what you need to be doing. But it was, it was, yeah. it was cool. Awesome. So let's talk about some of your ground training because you obviously probably trained at Luke. So talk us through some of your yeah ground training and what that entailed. Well, I would say Luke, like most programs that the Air Force has designed, everything leads off with ground training. We call it academics. Mm-hmm. So you'll spend, depending on the, the plane and the program, I think for F-16s, it's probably about three weeks of dedicated academics in the beginning where you're just learning the systems, you're doing simulator training. So in order to get your first check ride in F-16 to be qualified, instrument check, so we have two check rides at instrument qualification, meaning, hey, you can take off land, you can fly in the weather, you are certified to fly this plane by yourself, to the mission qualification check ride, which is you can go employ this in combat. So the initial check ride happens pretty quick. 
I think it's about five rides into the F-16 syllabus. So the ground training, you're going to spend that time learning the systems uh, that go into it, the procedures for the local traffic patterns. A lot of that's, some of that is self-study, some of it's taught to you. And then you're going to spend, you know, five or six simulators going through the ropes of what that first, what those first couple sorties will look like to get you through to your first check ride. In the mix there too, we're mixing in emergency procedures. Like that's the heavy focus is like, how do you fly this plane? How do you deal with it when there's an emergency? The nuts and bolts of it. After that point, now we're kind of focused on how do you employ this plane? How do you go out there and, you know, shoot missiles, drop bombs, use the radar and things like that. Mm-hmm. And the ground training just goes on too throughout the entire time. So you wouldn't obviously talk about, you know, radar employment in the initial phase. Maybe you get, we, I think, you know, you probably get like one thing of how to turn it on and a basic cursory overview, but you really dive deep later on when it gets into like the air to air phase. Mm-hmm. And can you talk us through how the aircraft handled the, I, so absolutely love that 16. I can see always equated, straight away. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it's like, I equate it to, you put a backpack on with a rocket motor strapped to it. I mean, you wear the F 16. It is, it's incredibly nimble, responsive. And a lot of people will ask like, Hey, how is it flying with a side stick? And going into training initially, we're like, this is going to be really weird. Not having a stick that moves, but having that side stick, it's really intuitive and very natural. Maybe after like, 30 minutes in the first sim, you don't even think about it. So you really just feel like you're wearing the F-16 is the best way that I can describe it. Mm-hmm. And I've heard, because um, I've interviewed a few F-16 pilots before, but apparently it only moves like, is it something like half an inch or something, the stick, uh, the right? I think it, it, I think it is expected to be like a tenth of an inch. I mean, it is not much. Inch. Wow. Yeah, it, it barely moves at all. I think I might have a video on my Instagram of it, of moving the stick to just show that there is no movement. But in order to command nine G's, it takes about 25 pounds of force. So one thing I'd always tell people during the demo, like, again, I'm pulling nine G's multiple times over and over again. Well, what does 25 pounds of force feel like? Like, I don't know. Mm-hmm. So every time you're pulling for all it's worth, so that's where it gets kind of exhausting when you're always trying to command, you know, the maximum you know limiter there. So, you know, trying to rip the stick off is what we kind of say. Rip the stick off. Great uh, terminology yeah. there. Um, yeah. Let's talk about um, the strengths and weaknesses of the aircraft. The, you know, so I think the strengths of it, it's shown over time, just how many that have been produced, how proliferated it is across the globe, because it is relatively low cost, mm-hmm. is relatively reliable, albeit it only has one engine. But again, and then I think, too, what we've shown is what it is capable of doing as far as the multi-role facet of it. It's kind of the, you know, we always joke it's the jack of all trades, master of none. Yeah. But because you can plug and play and put in these different mission sets, it makes it so affordable and economical for all these different nations to use. Obviously, the biggest weakness I think now that it's facing is the fact that it is a fourth gen platform. Mm-hmm. As the threats continue to emerge and evolve, it has to adapt. The U.S. Air Force we're not planning on buying any more F-16s. We're just going to modify them with new radar, defensive suites, and things like that, which really, in the next fight, is the key piece of it. Because it is not, it's not stealth, but it is a relatively low radar cross-section. But it's a missile truck, and if you give it a good radar, good defensive suite, you can make it much more survivable. And then with our data link capability, 
It's really about fighter integration. How do you leverage the strengths and weaknesses of all the different platforms in your toolkit in order to go out there and fight the next fight? Mm-hmm. Um, and that is, the, I think, the biggest thing right now is the current F-16s have to be modernized. Now, Bahrain, I think, is slated to get the Block 70 or the Viper. I forget what the, you know what the now the new designation is going to be of it. But it's going to have, you know, that plane could potentially have all the cool things that we've learned from all the other F-22, F-16, things like that. Yeah, so, but taking uh, all the lessons we've learned from the F-22 and the F- and uh, F-35 and putting that into the technology that can go into the F-16, such as the radar. And do you think, obviously, uh, you know, like the Middle East are kind of, yeah, you're getting all these amazing F-16s, but do you think the, the platform has now been taken to its limit? I, you know, the the I think if you redid the crew ratio for the F-16 with the missions that we do today, you would come out with a greater than one-to-one. So we would have a crew F-16. Because when you're talking about like doing the suppression of enemy air defense mission, yeah. defensive counter, there's a lot going on. Obviously, the, you know, we like to pride ourselves on the fact that we can do it. But now it's a matter of data processing, managing the sensors, managing the data in order to best affect the fight. And there's ways as we improve technology and ergonomics and things like that, yeah. we can reduce pilot workload. And definitely seeing that and doing expression in the air defenses as far as what our sensors were initially telling us when I first showed up. And I had a very limited time doing this, but what the sensors were initially telling us and what you had to interpolate or pull from the sensor to the time I left, you know, we're making things a little bit easier and more like in your face yeah. so that the end user, the pilot can see that data and instantly know what they need to do. So I think there are ways to leverage technology to continue to improve what the plane is able to do and what pilots are able to do with the plane. Absolutely. And uh, one of the questions our viewers love hearing about, and you probably love it as well, uh, DACT or BFM, like how did the F-16 fare against, you know, the F-15s, the F-18s, or even the RAF uh, aircraft uh, typhoon and stuff like that? Talk us through this. Yeah, so, I mean, this is one that could be a whole episode in itself. I was only fortunate (laughs) enough to fly against the Hornet and the Raptor. But, you know, there are guys out there who've done, who've flown against against all of them, which is a really cool thing to do. You know, flying against the Hornet and the Viper, you want to stay fast. Those guys want to get you slow. So there are a couple, like, pet tricks the Hornet guys can do. And usually it's pointing their nose at you really quickly in the fight, which if you react, you have to react to it. But if you overreact to it and... Uh, then kill all your airspeed, the Hornet is going to, he's going to clobber you because he loves to fight slow and fights much better slower than we do uh, versus, you know, my time fighting the Raptor. It's a definitely a, a bigger challenge. Uh, they have some advantages over the F-16. We have a few other advantages as well, but it's incredible to see the maneuverability of the Raptor, you know, fighting it because it can just do some stuff that, just doesn't make sense to, to most pilots. That is the part that's always fun. It's fighting other other aircraft because you can see those capabilities and trying to exploit those weaknesses that you've studied, that you've talked about, just trying to get better each each and every time. Yeah. And I'm guessing you were flying with the air because you were on the 77th Fight the Squadron. I'm guessing you were on the, was it the GE engine rather than the Pratt & Whitney? Yeah, so uh, the GE, that's for all of our active duty component, uh, F-16s. 
with the exception of the schoolhouse, like the B course, use mm-hmm. GE motors, a little bit more power, a little bit more thrust. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, so you can go back and forth as far as what guys, which, which motors they prefer. Yeah. I'm definitely a GE fan. Yeah, brilliant. And you also flew uh, 53 combat missions. Can you tell us as much as you can about this? Because that must have been, I mean, uh, quite scary, I would uh, assume. Well, I mean, honestly, it was really exciting to go do. Because, okay. you know, in, again, 9-11 was a big, big catalyst for me, like a lot of other people as far as okay. joining the military. And all I wanted to do is go get back at the people that hurt our country. Uh, they, the MC-12 was definitely like a deployment that kind of scratched that itch, but I really wanted to be on the kinetic end. So it was great, like helping, you know, ground forces and mm-hmm. finding the people that need to be found and, you know, either in, in enabling their kill or capture. But when it came down to it, being the guy on the pointy end to like directly impact the fight is what I wanted to do. So when I showed up with F-16, we were initially going to go on a training deployment to the Middle East just to be there as a show of presence, Syria was really acting up at that point. So yeah. just having more assets in the region is kind of the focus of what we're going to do. But uh, a few months after showing up with the squadron, ISIS really became a thing uh, on the global stage. So our deployment shifted from a training deployment to Operation Inherent Resolve. So it was right out the gate. And at, at that deployment, our F-16 unit dropped the most precision guided weapons of any F-16 unit in history. Oh, wow. Uh, and then it was subsequently beaten every single time that a unit was changed out. So it was a really busy time. But, you know, I, I think all of us can agree, like, ISIS was just a horrific organization. And seeing Absolutely. the stuff they did to people, um, you know, it, it it was one of those things that you wanted. To, I mean, for me, you want to make the world a better place. And knowing Absolutely. that these people are just doing some heinous, heinous things, whatever it took to help eradicate that hatred and ideology. Um, I don't know, it was, it was like it's humbling to be a part of. It was something very serious and definitely warranted uh, your full attention because, you know, we had one squadron mate who was, who was crashed and killed while, while over there. Yeah. So it's definitely a serious business. Uh, Jordanian pilot that we flew with uh, out of our base, he was, uh, went down in Syria and captured by ISIS and murdered. So, you know, some oh, ser- yeah. serious... I remember that story. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow. So, so some serious stuff. It definitely it wasn't just all fun and games, but it was... Um, I, I was glad I was a part of it, at least had a little piece of history in that, that effort. Absolutely. absolutely. And from myself, and obviously the viewers, I want to thank you for that because obviously you were there for the right reasons. So, you know, appreciate your service. But uh, let's move on a bit. Uh, because... A lot of our viewers ask, uh, especially with our American guests, did you ever work with the Brits? Yeah, so actually at Shaw, uh, we had one British exchange pilot. And that exchange has been there since the 90s. It actually ended while I was there because that exchange position is going to go to a new billet in the F-35. So uh, Carney Cable, tornado pilot, great human being. We actually, he was going through the transition course while mm-hmm. I was going through the B course. So we were together out at, in Arizona uh, and then went to Shaw together. We were in different squadrons, but it was a good friendship. 
I always loved Carney because he would like in, in Arizona, like I didn't know anything about scorpions. He definitely didn't know anything about scorpions, <laughs> but his, his thing was like, everything here is just trying to kill us, <laughs> you know, like rattlesnakes, scorpions, you know, oh, all yeah. sorts of things. Like in, you know, in England, we don't have this. It's just rainy and overcast Man, all yeah, the time. Terrible, yeah. So, yeah. uh, and then we, um, definitely a couple coalition red flags. And then actually in operation inherent resolve, we did a lot of combined deliberate strikes with, allied nations. So it was not uncommon to be involved in a strike package with right. Brits, Australians and Canadians. And then even, you know, we would mix in a lot of our Middle, Middle Eastern countries because that was the first real conflict that a lot of Middle Eastern uh, countries joined in. So I think we actually had one deliberate strike package uh, with, it was us, the Canadians, the Australians, the Brits, Moroccans, uh, UAE. Wow. And then, yeah, so yeah, Going out and it was pretty. It was striking an oil refinery in Syria, which was quite a big fire in the end of it. But um, and how does that work? I mean, I, you probably can't get into technical details, but uh, how does that work with the language barrier and just cultural differences? Is that is that a big uh, thing for yourself? It it absolutely is. So we do a lot of. I mean, it's video teleconferencing, but one person will be designated as the mission commander, so they get what the commander's intent is, and that might be, hey, we want to destroy building X, Y, and Z. These are the assets you have mission commander at you. You have, have four USF 16s, you have two Canadian Hornets, so on and so, so forth. They will devise a plan in order to meet the commander's intent. And then all those parties that are involved in that mission, we're gonna have multiple planning sessions a day prior or 48 hours prior, whatever it might be through video teleconference, phone calls and things like that. We'll build out a whole plan, and it's really impressive to see it all come together airborne when all these people are geographically separated by hundreds of miles in different bases. And as you mentioned, language barriers are usually overcome because English is the the aviation language, mm-hmm. but it definitely exists. So you have to be cognizant of that. And I think one thing that we do really well, the U.S., Brits, Australians, Canadians, we've grasped that there's no rank in the debrief. And we also, when we make a mistake, own it yeah. and not try to cover it up. And that's not, that doesn't necessarily translate to all cultures. There's a lot of saving face in some cultures more so than others uh, to the point where it would be a detriment to, to the mission. Mm-hmm. So you have to balance some of those. Whereas I could tell you, hey, you really messed that up. And you would say, yep, you're right. Let's make it better for the next time. Obviously, that direct method might not necessarily work well with some of our allied nations. So there's essentially no pride in the debrief room or that kind of thing. There shouldn't be. Yeah. And I mean, it's a tough thing, right? I mean, human nature is you want to do well. You don't want to be embarrassed. But part of aviation is every, I've never had a perfect sortie. Every time you go out there, I'm, I'm going to make mistakes. You try to capture those mistakes faster each time or prevent them from happening. But undoubtedly, you, there's no way you will fly a perfect mission. There, and I, if any if anyone ever says they flew a perfect sortie, I'm calling them a liar. And I think most <laughs> most pilots would, because you will always go out there and learn. You will always go out there and make a mistake. And owning those mistakes, and honestly, I think owning those, identifying those, figuring out what the fix is so it doesn't happen again, but then sharing that mm-hmm. is such an important piece of aviation because we all want to be better and you don't want your your brother to make the same mistake you did absolutely when you could have given that that bit of information yeah that's great